I want to greet all you folks joining us online, wherever you might be. Welcome to the first weekend of spring break, or like we like to call it at my house, the holiday from hell. I don't want you to get the impression I'm not a big fan of spring break, but I'm not. I'm glad when people have the opportunity to get away and get some rest. I just hate that it affects our church for three weekends in a row the way that it does. Grab a Bible and go with me to Matthew chapter 5. There's really no bitterness there inside of me about that. But grab your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we are glad to have all of you here today. And uh, if you're a guest, thanks so much for being a part of our service. Uh, what we're doing, and we've been doing this for a little over three months now, is we're working our way verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew, which is a pretty ambitious uh, endeavor because Matthew is the longest of the gospels. It's 28 chapters long. And so we're going to be doing this for a while. And this morning, once again, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5 in a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture called the Beatitudes. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at one Beatitude each week, but uh, as we've introduced each week, we have read together the entire passage of the Beatitudes, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service every weekend, and when we do it, we stand together. So if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, go ahead and stand with me this morning, and uh, you follow along in your Bible as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Let's just remind ourselves as we begin of those two fundamental truths that we've talked about every week in relation to the Beatitudes because they help us understand the overall passage. The first one is this. God promises a happiness that's real, a happiness that's real. You know that nine different times in those 12 verses, Jesus uses the word blessed. And I've told you that's the Greek word makarios. And even though it's translated blessed in our English Bibles, the closest English equivalent to the word is the word happy. And so in the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about happiness, a happiness that God promises, but a happiness that's real. And what makes it different from the happiness that we experience in the world is the happiness in the world, and you know this better than I do, is uh, an emotion that can literally be here one moment and gone the next, literally. Maybe even less than a minute, you can go from happiness to unhappiness in a heartbeat because it's affected by the circumstances of our lives. But what <clears throat> Jesus is talking about is something much different from that, something much deeper than that. He's talking about a deep level of inner contentment that is unaffected by the circumstances of life, a satisfaction deep inside of us that's unaffected by the circumstances of life. Now, let's just all acknowledge today that that's something that we all long for, right? an anchor in our lives that's not affected by the things that happen around us. And that's the happiness that God promises. The second truth that we've reminded ourselves of every week is that real happiness, this real happiness we're talking about, comes in unexpected ways. It's all about attitude. It's all about attitude. 
And when we read the Beatitudes, what we see is Jesus describing this real happiness that God promises by giving us, systematically giving us the attitudes that lead to salvation. Salvation is the source of this real happiness that God promises. And it's that word attitudes that's critical because salvation is the result of right attitudes. Sometimes people think salvation is a result of actions, but that's not the case. There are actions that express the reality of our, satis- our salvation, but salvation primarily is the result of right attitudes. And so from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, all the way down to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12, Jesus gives us those right attitudes and powerful statements that all begin with the word blessed, which we understand means happy. Once again, we're going to see that. Each one of them are powerful and, and, and have deep application to our lives. And once again, we're going to see that as we look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, to begin to understand this, let's acknowledge that the idea of peace literally permeates the Bible from cover to cover. And here's why I say that. When God created the world and put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was a place, the Bible describes, of perfect peace, because Adam and Eve in that period of time lived in perfect peace with God. They lived in perfect fellowship with God. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, this happens in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered into the world, that perfect peace was interrupted because their perfect relationship with God, their perfect fellowship with God was interrupted. One of the most fundamental things the Bible tells us about sin is that it separates. And that's what happened. When sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3, it separated Adam and Eve from their perfect relationship with God. And so that peace was interrupted. Then when Jesus came into the world and ultimately went to the cross and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, he created an opportunity for that perfect peace to be restored. And one day, the Bible tells us, one day when Jesus returns, he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be perfect peace for all eternity for everyone who belongs to the family of God. And so you could literally say, it's not a stretch to say that the Bible is from cover to cover, it's literally a story of peace. It's a story of peace established, peace forfeited, peace regained, and peace eternal. Peace is a big deal to God. There are almost 400 references to peace in the Bible. And so learning about peace and learning in particular this morning what it means to be a peacemaker is critical because this is God's expectation for all of us. And even that is really not an accurate statement. It's not just God's expectation for all of us. It's God's priority for all of us as believers to be peacemakers, something that we have to do. Because God didn't give the responsibility of being a peacemaker to politicians or statesmen or diplomats or lawyers or judges or kings or ambassadors or presidents. He didn't give it to organizations like United Nations or the World Council of Churches. He gave it to ordinary people just like you and me. This is God's expectation for us. This is what God wants to be a priority for us, to be peacemakers. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So let's try to understand that this morning like we have each and every week by just asking a handful of questions. Here's the first one. What is the meaning of peace? Now, I know that might sound like an odd question, a silly question, but I want you to bear with me. If we were going to to define peace from a purely worldly perspective, then we would say that peace is the absence of conflict. Write that down in your notes. If we were going to define peace from a purely worldly perspective, then we would say that peace is the absence of conflict. But we're not talking about peace 
from a worldly perspective when we have our Bibles open. open. We're talking about peace from God's perspective. And in the Bible, peace isn't the absence of something. It's the presence of something that produces good, that produces well-being, that produces what's right. And this is a very important distinction for us to make this morning because worldly peace, again, we define that as the absence of conflict, is oftentimes nothing more than just ignoring or evading an issue. Now, let's just all acknowledge today that there can be times in our lives when those are harmless issues. Like, for example, choosing not to tell someone, like your spouse, for example, choosing not to tell them something that they did that bothered you or made you angry or hurt your feelings because you know that saying that, telling them, is just going to result in hurt and angry feelings on their part. Now, that might reflect a lot of common sense on your part, especially if you're a husband, for example, choosing not to tell your wife about something she did that made you mad. But that's not real peace. That's just evading the issue. You don't say something so that you can avoid the blow-up because at the end of the day, you know it's just not that big a deal. And now, aren't there situations like that in all of our lives all the time? Where, I mean, something ticks us off, something makes us mad, something hurts our feelings a little bit, it upsets us on some level, but we just make the decision, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not that big a deal, I'm just going to let it go. And there are situations like that in all of our lives, and that reflects a lot of maturity at times on our part. There's a great verse that I memorized a long time ago, and I would encourage everybody to memorize it. I didn't put it in the PowerPoint, but you might write it down in your notes. It's Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, the proverb writer says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Did you hear that? A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory or to his credit to overlook an offense. And there are moments in our lives when we have to do that because at the end of the day, whatever the issue was, it just wasn't that big a deal. But sometimes it is a big deal. Sometimes it is. Maybe somebody that you love and that you care about deeply, somebody in your family, for example, maybe they've made a bad choice in their life. And it's a bad choice not because you think it's wrong. It's a bad choice because it's in direct conflict with the Word of God, with what the Bible teaches about God's will for life and living. It's in direct conflict with the Word of God, and it doesn't reflect God's best for their life, and you know that it has the potential to harm that person that you love and care about. It might even have the, if it's your family, it might even have the potential to harm your entire family. And so you know what needs to happen. You need to say something. You need to speak up. You need to confront that decision that's wrong. But at the end of the day, what you end up doing for the sake of avoiding conflict, which is the worldly definition of peace, not God's definition, for the sake of avoiding conflict, you choose to be silent. You don't open your mouth. I want you to listen to me close. That's not peace. That's not. It might be the absence of conflict, which is the worldly definition of peace, but it's not peace in the strictest sense from a biblical perspective. And it's certainly not peace if it leaves you with all kinds of negative feelings that begin to fester inside of you because you're so upset or so concerned with this person that you love and care about who's made the wrong choice. God never tells us to do whatever we have to do so that we can live in superficial tranquility with someone. God never instructs us to avoid or evade the confrontation of something that's wrong for the sake of maintaining some kind of superficial truce. Never. 
That's not biblical peace. Biblical peace, again, is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of goodness. It's the presence of truth. It's the presence of what's right that leads to a peaceful life. Look at these words on the screen from James chapter 3 and verse 17. James 3, 17 says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven, maybe your Bible says above, but the wisdom that comes from heaven or above is first of all pure, then peace-loving. How are we to understand those words? Well, it's really simple. James is saying that peace comes from pure wisdom, which comes from heaven, or in other words, which comes from God. Now, God conveys His wisdom to us in the form of truth. And so here's what James is saying. Peace is never sought at the price of truth. Never. Peace is never sought at the price of truth. Let me ask you a question. On, on just some kind of a practical level in your life, has there ever been a time when somebody tried to get you to go along with something that was wrong, to agree that with something that's wrong, or to just overlook something that was wrong just for the sake of avoiding a conflict, just for the sake of avoiding strife or trouble or adversity on some level. In your heart, you knew it wasn't right, and somebody was trying to get you just to look the other way because they were trying to avoid conflict. That's not peace. It's not. Peace is never sought at the price of truth. Look at this word, these uh, words on the screen from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4. The Hebrew writer basically says the same thing that, that uh, Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy, or excuse me, James says in James chapter 3, he says the same thing, but he just does it, does it in different ways. Hebrews 12, 14, he says, make every effort to live in peace with all men, note this, and to be holy. So just like peace is never sought at the price of truth, peace is never sought at the price of holiness. We don't violate the truth of God's word just to avoid conflict with someone, just to avoid a difficult situation. That means there are times in our lives, all of us as believers, if we're going to be peacemakers, that means there are times in all of our lives for the sake of real, genuine, biblical peace, the kind of peace that honors God. When we have to confront something that's wrong, when we have to confront, for example, sin in someone's life, when we have to confront sinful behavior. Now, is that difficult? You better believe it's difficult. And not only is it difficult, but it can oftentimes be costly. It can cost you relationships that are important to you. There are five children in my family. I'm right in the middle. I have an older sister, an older brother, and I have a younger brother and a younger sister. My older sister and I were very close when we were growing up. She's a very gifted musician. She plays the piano and sings, and we used to do that together in church all the time, the little church that we grew up in. We were both in college together. At the same time, she was a couple of years ahead of me, but while we were there, we used to travel <clears throat> and sing to represent the college in different churches. And oftentimes, even, uh, even oftentimes when President Eidelman, who was the president of the college at the time, would go to speak in local churches to represent the college, he would take us with, uh, with him, and she would play the piano and sing, and I would sing, and we were very close. She didn't get married when she was in college, and when she graduated, she moved back to Houston, Texas, where we lived at the time, and she got involved in uh, the work world, and she met a guy, and they got engaged. But here's the deal. He wasn't a Christian. And not only was he not a Christian, but he was as far from God as you could possibly be. And he had absolutely no interest, zero interest in spiritual things. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Now, I was troubled by this because how many of you know that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, that uh, we're not to be, uh, that believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers believers. Now, that verse has application in a lot of different areas of life and a lot of different kinds of relationships, but it certainly, listen, listen, it certainly has an application in the relationship of marriage, which is the deepest, closest, most intimate personal relationship you can ever be involved in. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so the Holy Spirit inside of me just would not leave my heart alone and compelled me to say something to her about this and voice this concern and ask her questions about this. And so one day I did. And I'm telling you something, folks. It did not go well. It didn't. It didn't go well. And it affected our relationship for a period of time. It's not affected today, but it affected our relationship for a period of time. Because here's the deal. The pursuit of peace, God's peace, it's so different from the world. The world's peace is, the, is uh, avoiding conflict, but the pursuit of God's peace oftentimes results in conflict. No one understood that better than Jesus did. I'm going to put a verse of Scripture up on the screen from Matthew chapter 10. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, as I look at it in my Bible, the, that the chapter heading for the whole 10th chapter is Jesus sends out the 12. And so this was a period of time where Jesus sends the disciples out to do ministry. And he spends a lot of time in the 10th chapter preparing them, giving them instruction, teaching them about this ministry. And toward the end of the chapter, this is what he says. This is a crazy statement. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth, to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now this is Jesus. What in the world? This is the same Jesus that Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, 6 calls the prince of peace but here he's saying do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth I did not come to bring peace but a sword why did he say that well Jesus knew and this is what we all have to understand that nobody can have real peace in their life until they're at they're living at peace with God and in order to live at peace with God Sometimes you have to confront issues and make decisions that can create conflict even in the closest of relationships. If I look back in Matthew chapter 10 and I read the next two verses after that verse that we just had on the screen, verse 34, Jesus goes on to say, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now Jesus was sending the disciples out with the message of Christ. And he didn't want them to think that he was calling them to some kind of a life that was void of conflict. Because sometimes when people make a decision for Christ, it results in broken relationships with folks who are close to them who just don't understand, who don't have the same conviction, who don't sense the same need. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe that describes some reality in your family where somebody uh, became a Christian and it negatively affected the relationships of their life. Sometimes even the closest ones. The peace that we read about in the Bible is not the absence of something. It's the presence of something that's good and right and true that produces real peace. Not just the avoidance of conflict, but real, long-lasting, eternal peace. And sometimes that's a difficult situation for us when we're called to be peacemakers. Now, I could talk about this for another hour, but I'm going to move on because I think you get the point. So here's the second question. How do I become a peacemaker? Well, let's just start with the obvious. First, you have to make peace with God yourself. And there's only one way for that to happen. That's through salvation. That's it. You know, and that just makes sense because if the Beatitudes are Jesus giving us a description or teaching us about the attitudes that lead to salvation, then it just makes sense that every week we're going to have to talk on some level about salvation. So if you're here this morning or you're listening to me somewhere online and you've never had that moment where you've surrendered your life in complete faith and, faith and trust, you've admitted you're a sinner and as a result surrendered your life in complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he accomplished when he died for you on the cross, 
then you're not living in a right relationship with God. You don't have peace with God. And this is something that needs to be understood because I'm afraid that there are people today who think that even though they've never done that, they've never made that, that specific step, they've never taken that specific step of saving faith, that they're somehow good with God. Listen, you're not. You're not. I don't know any other way to say it. You're not. You're not. And in fact, there's a passage of Scripture that we'll put up on the screen. I want you to write it down. It's Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Write that down. Go back and read that sometime today. This is basically Paul uh, summarizing the gospel for us. And there's an interesting statement he makes in there in verse 10. He, in verse 10, he talks about what, what uh, the life of a Christian was like before they were saved, and he called them enemies of God. Now, how many of you know sometimes the Bible uses strong words to make strong points in a strong way? And that's what's happening here. Because that sounds so harsh. Listen, if you're not a Christian today, God loves you with an everlasting love. The deepest desire of his heart is to have a relationship with you. He sent his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. But until you've put your faith and trust in him, you're not, you're not somehow okay with God. You're an enemy. Because the line has been drawn. There's only two sides. And you can't be a peacemaker until you've made peace with God. The second thing, if you want to be a peacemaker, then you've got to help others make peace with God. This has got to be a desire in your heart. This has got to be a calling, a, a burden on your heart to help other people make peace with God. And uh, I know that scares so many Christians to death. We've talked about that. In fact, we talked about that, that not that long ago. That scares people to death because we think, I could never have a spiritual conversation with somebody. I could never share my faith with somebody. I could never do anything like that. Well, I think part of the problem for a lot of us when it comes to this, this need is that we view evangelism, that's just what we're talking about, evangelism, the sharing of faith, we view it as a transactional thing. And I think in the past, I think back when I first began my ministry, I would say that it was largely transactional because I would look for an opportunity that might be a 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an opportunity with somebody to share the gospel with them in hopes that they would respond. It was a kind of a transactional relationship. I offered something and they either accepted it or they didn't. But that's really not the way evangelism works for the most part today. It's not the word transactional that we need to focus on. Evangelism today, sharing our faith today, is more relational. And you can do that. You can develop a personal relationship with somebody, and in the context of that relationship, you can tell them what God has done for you. You can tell them that Jesus has made a difference in your life. You can tell them your story. You can tell them how they can experience the same thing. So if you want to be a peacemaker, you have to first make peace with God. And then second, you have to help others make peace with God. And the third one is this. This just makes sense. Listen, you have, to live a, you have to live in peace. You have to live a peaceful life. I wish we had a lot of time to talk about this, but we don't because that means so many different things. Let me just give you one example of what that looks like. If you want to live at peace with God, then you need to be a person who is peaceful in your relationships, which means you need to be a person who is willing to forgive other people. Okay? Peace with God comes because He's willing to forgive you. Living in peace means that you need, for example, this is just one way, to be willing to forgive other people. I've got my Bible open to Romans chapter 12. I want you to listen to a passage here that Paul shares beginning in verse 17. Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, basically, Paul's saying, listen, in the relationships of life, in the issues of life, in particular with relationships, you just need to be a peaceful person. You need to live at 
peace. In peace, that means you forgive somebody instead of trying to get revenge. You love that person. Paul uses interesting words there. He says, like heaping burning coals on their head. Now, I'll be the first to admit, there are a lot of times I'd rather just heap burning coals on someone's head. You know what I'm talking about? Because I'm so hurt or wounded or upset by what they've done, and I want to see them pay. But this is not what God says to do. So we need to live in peace. Now, that's just one example. There's lots of other examples. You, you want to be a peacemaker, you live a peaceful life. And living a peaceful life means you do what God says to do. You live a right life in so many different ways. One great example would just be in the area of forgiveness. Now, listen. Listen, there are moments when we live our lives as peacemakers when we do have to confront people about things in their life that aren't right. We do have to confront people about sin or sinful behavior or wrong choices. And those are difficult moments. They're difficult for all of us. The thing is, we need to do it as, as lovingly, as kindly, and as gently as possible. And when people, when people do something to hurt you and offend you, the Bible gives us some very good instructions about how to deal with that. They're found in Matthew chapter 18. They begin in verse 15. But I'm going to put a verse of Scripture up on the screen that I want all of us to pay close attention to. It's Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, and this is a verse that should guide us when it comes to being a peacemaker in the sense of speaking into somebody's life in a way that might create conflict in the moment, but we hope and pray will end up resulting in peace. It's Galatians 6, 1, where Paul writes and says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Now, I'm going to just tell you the thing about that verse that stands out to me the most. One thing, that's all we have time to do. It's when he says, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Restore is a great word in the original language of the New Testament. It was often associated with the practice of medicine. And in specifically, it was a word that would be used to describe somebody who would set a broken bone. Mend a broken bone. Now, if you broke your arm or you broke your leg and you had to go to the doctor or someone to set that, and let's say there wasn't any anesthetic available, don't you want them to be as gentle as possible? Don't you want them to be as kind and gentle and considerate and easy as possible? And that's the instruction for all of us when it comes to being a peacemaker in the sense of speaking into somebody's life about something that's wrong. This is not a license for us to be a spiritual bully and our only motivation should be love and concern. One last question. What's the result of being a peacemaker? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemaker, peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You know what? Um, I, I, I keep a little note next to my computer on my, on my credenza at my desk with some basic rules of biblical interpretation that I look at all the time to remind me. And one of those rules that I put there is the meaning of words matters. So when I study the Bible, I try to find out the meaning of words, even sometimes the most simple words. The word sons there is a powerful word. And there are multiple different words in the Greek language that are translated sons. But this is a very specific one. It's the Greek word huios. I'll put it up on the screen so you can see it. And it conveys the idea of stature, inheritance, dignity, honor, and standing. The best way I can describe the meaning of this word is like this. It's a word that you would use when you would look at someone and say, you know what, I know whose son you are because you bear such a strong resemblance to your father. Now, nobody's ever said that to me, but I know people have said that to my son before. They say, I know who you are because you, you have such a strong resemblance of your father or you remind me of your father. I hope that he sees that as a compliment. 
But when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, he's saying, when you're a peacemaker, you're like God. Now, let me ask you, can you think of any better compliment somebody could ever say to you other than or beyond, listen, when I look at you, I see God. When I look at the way you live your life, I see God. That's what happens when you're a peacemaker. You remind the world of the ultimate peacemaker. So, are you a peacemaker? Can you say about yourself today, I am a peacemaker? Only if your life is right with God, you've made peace with God. Do you have a desire to help other people make peace with God? And you living a right, peaceful life? These are the questions we all have to answer. I want you to pray with me. Father, thanks for a chance to study the Bible together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to be taught from Jesus what it means to be a peacemaker. And I pray that's something that we would all embrace. I pray that if there's anybody here today who is not living at peace with God, that you would, you would guide their heart, convict their heart to make that choice and that decision. Maybe somebody perhaps who's watching online, that you would help them to reach out to us so we can tell them what they need to know and do in order to be right with you. And help us to have a burden for people that we know and love that are not living at peace with you. And help us just to live lives of peace every day. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus who brought us peace. I pray this in his name. Amen. Stand together with me like we always do. And let me just have a